We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ, and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Good morning. Good morning. I have still not mastered the art of not getting soaked when I'm baptizing someone, so I brought a change of clothes this time and uh, ready to go just in time. So, (laughs) Well, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. This is our last week in Genesis for a little while. Uh, We're going to take a break from Genesis and look at uh, several weeks in the Lord's Prayer starting next week. So I hope you'll invite family and friends to that new, that new series on the Lord's Prayer where we're going to look at what prayer is, how we should pray. It's called Pray Like This. And so we're excited about it. hope you will join us for that. Um, but today's our last day in Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And as we start, I uh, just want to ask a question. Have you ever felt like no one knows the real you? Have you ever felt a longing for somebody to know you as you really are and and care about you anyway? Despite the things that maybe you're afraid they might see, despite the things that maybe you've done in your past, despite the things that maybe have happened to you in your past, maybe you have had a longing for someone to know you deeply as you are. But maybe you've been afraid to be in that kind of an intimate, committed relationship where you're fully known, where someone fully knows who you are. And I feel like a lot of us uh, find ourselves in those places where, you know, we are okay with partially being known. We're okay with people knowing the public us that's in front of other people. And, and you know, but then we hide some things back because we're afraid that if we show people some of the things about who we are, that they might not love us the same way. And we were made for this kind of intimate, deep, committed relationship. We were made for community. That's what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 2. We were made for relationships. And we see this, don't we? We see this even in our desire to watch romantic comedies. And, you know, around Christmas time, we watch all the Hallmark movies because there's these relationships that, you know, people finally meet someone who can know the real them and love them as they are. And and at the end, it's just this happy ending where people know each other and are growing in this committed relationship. And and then we, you know, it's, it's the reason that on Facebook, whenever we see an engagement post or wedding photos, that those posts get hundreds and hundreds of likes and comments as opposed to regular posts to you. It's because we have this desire to be fully known. We have this desire for community and genuine community, genuine relationships where someone knows us as we are and loves us anyways. And in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to see with the creation of woman today how God has designed us for this kind of intimate, close, committed relationship with other human beings. And so I hope you'll open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 as we look at the creation of woman today. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the, oh, sorry, that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. For the Lord God, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we look at your word together today, we ask that you might give us understanding. You might give us clarity as to what you're teaching us through your words today. God, that we might see the beauty of your design and that we might live in light of it, trusting in you always. So God, we pray for your wisdom and your help today as we meet together in Jesus' name, amen. So anytime a, a man talks about the creation of women, um, it can you know, get a little dicey. Um, but I wanna point out a couple of things about what the Bible has to say about women. Because the Bible, contrary to popular belief, um, is, is very pro-woman. It, you know, we, we, we think in our culture there's, there's this idea that only modern people care about women. Only modern contemporary people uh, who are feministic in their thinking or, or whatever it might be, that they care about women, but that ancient people, like, like the people who wrote the Bible, that they didn't really. Well, the Bible has always had this countercultural view of humanity. It's always been different than the view of humanity surrounding it. And so even in Moses' day, uh, you, would, you would look at other creation accounts of, of other cultures nearby him, and you wouldn't see an account of the creation of woman. You would see an account of the creation of man, but not of woman. And so Moses' account of creation is unique in this aspect that he devotes uh, like six to eight verses to just talking about why God has made women. And there's this incredible value in that because in the culture in which he was writing, this was, this was unique, this was special. And the Bible has always had a very high view of women. Even when we think about the New Testament and Jesus' resurrection, who were the first witnesses to the resurrection of Christ? They were women, right? So the Bible has always had a very high view of womanhood and who women are and what they're created to do. And so it's always been countercultural, and it's always been this high view of women as they're created in God's image with equal value, dignity, and worth, like we talked about in Genesis 1. And so the idea that the Bible has this low view of women, womanhood is just not true. You see, we see in Genesis that and not only, Moses not only talks about the creation of women, which is unique in his culture, but he also talks about the creation of one woman for one man. And so Moses lays out for us this picture of marriage that is very, and sexuality that is different than the surrounding cultures where one woman and one man are to be committed to one another in this covenant called marriage. 
This is the first place in the Bible that we see marriage. Did you see how, how it ended, how, how our passage ended today? Look at what it says at the very end. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And so this passage introduces marriage to us for the first time. And it's very controversial in Moses' day because Moses lived in a polygamous culture where there were all sorts of different expressions of human sexuality and intimacy. And Moses is writing this creation account for us and he's showing us a different kind of relationship between man and woman. He's showing us a committed covenant relationship where there can be true knowledge of one another, true intimacy and connection. And it's totally different than what you see in the surrounding cultures. And so Moses has a very high view of womanhood, and I just wanted to point that out as we start. But there's five things that I want us to look at quickly today about what God is doing here in this passage. The first one in verse 18 is that it is not good to be alone. Do you see that? In verse 18, here's what God says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone, and I will make a helper fit for him. And so we have to think back to what what good means in Genesis 1 and 2, right? And we talked about this early on in our series where good in Genesis means something that functions properly, something that's designed well and it's made to function for a certain purpose. And so when God makes the heavens and the earth and he starts to fill it with living creatures and he calls them good, what he's saying is that this is a good thing. I have designed it and it is functioning properly. And then we get to Genesis 2. And all of a sudden, for the first time in the Bible, we see something that's not good. God's been creating things on days one through six of creation and just keeps saying, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. It is very good. And then in Genesis 2, we see a different thing entirely. He says, it is not good that man should be alone. And so what, what is Moses trying to tell us here? What is God trying to tell us through Moses' words? Well, I think what we see here is, remember back to what God told us what God told humanity to do in Genesis 1:28. Here's God's first commandment to humanity, his first blessing on humanity. It says, "And God blessed them and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth." And so we talked about how this first commandment of God was this command that we would fill the earth with his glory as his image bearers, as his representatives who are made to reflect who he is to his creation. So he commands man to fill the earth with his image, to be his representative everywhere. And then in Genesis 2, we have this problem because it's not good that man should be alone because man cannot obey God's first command without woman. The woman is absolutely necessary to what God's plans are for humanity. It's absolutely essential that Adam have a wife because he cannot obey God without his wife. God's first command is that they would be fruitful and multiply, filling the earth and subduing it and ruling and reigning on behalf of God over the rest of creation. 
And Adam alone can't accomplish this task. He needs someone else. There's something lacking in Adam. He needs a counterpart. He needs someone that's corresponding to him, that's suitable for him, that can help him with this task. You see, woman was absolutely necessary for God's plans in the world. And so God says it is not good for man to be alone. It's like when a, when a, when a team is missing a key player. And so I'm a huge basketball fan, and it is March, friends. And I firmly believe that God has designed it this way so that March Madness leads up into the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. I mean, this is, it is God's sovereignty and his ordaining of his will. And so I'm very excited about this month, and I hope you are as well. But one of, my, one of my favorite teams to watch is Duke. And so I know some of you don't like Duke because you're Kentucky fans, you know, so... That's okay, we can talk after service. But, um, and I'll hug you whenever you're crying because they lost to Duke in the tournament. But anyways, uh, many of you know Duke has this guy named Zion Williamson. He's going to be the first pick in the NBA draft this year, and he's just this monster athlete. I mean, the, the guy jumps from the free throw line to dunk, and it looks like he's just taking a step. That's how incredible he is as an athlete. And it's incredible to watch him play, but he got hurt in this game versus North Carolina, and he's been out for several games, and the team just hasn't been the same since. And so there's this idea that we need something that someone else can contribute for a certain task, right? So just like Duke needs their their key player, their star player, just like that, Adam needs Eve to accomplish what God has given Adam to do. They need one another, or maybe, you know, maybe you're not a basketball person, and so maybe you think about at work, whenever a key person is out sick, and how the team is not able to perform the way that they should and accomplish the tasks that have been given to them because somebody's out. You see, we've been wired to need other people. We've been wired to need relationships. We've been wired to need one another, to be in relationships. We've not been made to do what God has called us to do in life alone. God says it is not good that man should be alone. And here's what this means for us. This means that relationships, as Paul Tripp and Tim Lane say, are a mess worth making. And so many of you have had relationships in your life where you've just been burnt. You've been hurt. You've made yourself vulnerable and and you've entered into a relationship and and you've tried to get to know someone and then maybe they used some information that you shared with them against you and it really damaged your relationship with them. And it left you guarded and closed off to relationships in the future. Many of us have gone through experiences like that where we've tried to enter in and be in deep relationships with other human beings and it has just not ended well. Well, what we see here in Genesis 2 is that God has designed us for relationships. And so even when in a Genesis 3 world, after the fall, where we're experiencing the effects of sin and rebellion against God and sin against one another, where our relationships are damaged, we still need them. And this is true not just for married people. It's not, it's not just not good that a man should not have a wife. It's not good that man should be alone. Do you see that? It's, the idea here is that we need other people. We need relationships with other human beings. We need to be in community. 
We need to be in relationships and deep, committed relationships where we're committed to knowing one another, encouraging one another, and building each other up. We need this kind of connection. The Bible's not saying that it's bad to be single. It's saying that it's bad to be isolated. And so when you say, I've been hurt in relationships, Pastor Grant, I, I don't want to enter into a relationship with, like, with, that, with that kind of intimacy again because it just doesn't work. And you isolate yourself, and then you begin to feel down, and you can't figure out why. It's because you're alone, and we weren't made to be alone. It's not good to be alone. And I know I know that entering into relationships where you deeply know someone is a scary thing to do. Because the reality in a Genesis 3 world where we've experienced the effects of sin and evil is that sometimes we're gonna be hurt. But friends, when God says something about us, when he says something is true and necessary and good for us, it's always better to trust his words than it is our own interpretation, our own perspective. You see, you think that because you've been hurt in a relationship in, a, in the past, that the solution and the way to joy in life is to just not do that again. And then you wonder why you're so down, so upset about life, and it's because you're missing God, God's necessary plan for your life. And again, I'm not saying his necessary plan for your life is for you to get married. We talked about how the New Testament has this perspective of both marriage and singleness as though they're both good gifts from God, where we can serve the Lord and honor him and represent him even as image bearers. But it's not good to be alone. We're meant to reflect who God is with one another. This is why the church is so necessary. This is why we ought to be committed to one another in a covenant relationship of church membership. We ought to be joining with one another in faith and committed to one another's good as we encourage one another, rebuke one another, and spur one another on towards love and good works, as the New Testament tells us. We were made for community. The Proverbs 27, 17 says this, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. In Ecclesiastes, we read, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken." You know, the, the context of that Ecclesiastes passage is amazing because it, it, what it talks about is how, you know, there's vanity in working just for yourself. So there's this idea that working alongside others and working with and for others and to enjoy the rewards of work with other people is a good thing that brings joy that's lasting for us. That God has made us for relationships, even though relationships sometimes hurt in a Genesis 3 world. Then we see in verses 18 through 23 that God makes woman as a suitable helper for Adam, a helper that fits. 
He says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, and then we read, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And so God brings all the living creatures to the man and he begins to name them. And yet what we read is that there was not a, found a helper fit for him. And so Adam looks across all of creation and sees everything good that God has made and notices that there's, there's not anyone like him. There's not anyone that fits him, that corresponds to him, that can provide what he's lacking and, and that fits with him. The idea here is like, if you've ever, if, you know, I'm not big on puzzles, but maybe some of you like puzzles, you know, I, I think they take a lot of time and, and you know, I just get frustrated because you, there's always that one piece, you know, you're just always missing one piece and that's the piece that you're working on for an hour and then you realize when you're done that it was missing the whole time, you know, but if you've ever put a puzzle together, you know that they're meant to fit perfectly, they're meant to correspond to one another, the pieces, right? And then when they come together, they form this beautiful picture, this beautiful new thing. And they can't function apart from one another. They need one another. They correspond to one another. They fit together. This is the idea that we see here in Genesis 2, that God is making woman as someone who corresponds to man, that they fit together, that their differences are intentional and complementary, that they're meant to be in relationship with one another as they obey God in the mandate that he gave to them as they seek to spread his image and his glory throughout the earth. That man needs woman because she's a helper suitable or fit for him. And so, ladies, I know whenever I say helper, you, you just immediately start to think, what are you talking about? I'm a helper. Like, you know, there's this idea, there's this tension almost immediately when we use a word like that. But what we have to understand is that the Bible is using the word helper in a very different way than you and I often do. So you and I, when we think of the word helper, we tend to think about, you know, like mom or dad asking for, for help from little Jimmy. You know, and, and, and mom and dad know that, you know, little Jimmy doesn't have the same capabilities that they do, and, and they're really just asking for Jimmy's help so that, you know, they can keep Jimmy busy, right? And it's just kind of this cute little thing, right? That is not what the word helper means here. What the word helper means in Genesis 2 is, is someone that is necessary and that provides what is lacking in someone else. The, the woman is a necessary part of God's plan. And that same word helper is used throughout the Bible to describe who? God himself. In the Old Testament, I think it's something like 16 out of 19 times that the word helper describes God. So that God is our helper. God is our present help in time of need. God is described as a helper in both the Old and New Testaments, right? We read Jesus' words when he talks about the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit is sent as the helper, right? This is what Jesus says. Jesus is talking to his disciples. It's this beautiful scene where, where he's, after three and a half years of them following him, being in a close relationship with Jesus, the God-man, God in the flesh, he says, hey, it's actually better for you guys if I go away so that I can send the Spirit to you, so that I can send the Helper to you. 
And so he tells his disciples this, and they're like, you're crazy. Like, we've seen you raise people from the dead. We've seen you heal the sick and give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. And, and this idea that it's good for you to go away is just insane. And Jesus says, no, it's better that I send the Holy Spirit to you because he is the helper. He is the advocate. He is the counselor. See, the word helper describes what God does. And so when we read that God creates woman as a helper fit for man, what we're reading is that God creates someone who is able to image and reflect who he is in a very specific, special way. We're not reading about some kind of inferiority here. That's not the picture that Moses is giving us. Again, Moses has this very high view of womanhood and what it means to be a woman created by God in his image, to reflect who he is in relationship with others. And so helper is not this demeaning, inferior term. It's something that describes who God is and how we can even reflect something of who God is. And so, so men, here's the thing that we need to see is that God said it's, it's bad for you and I to be alone, okay? And then he makes a helper fit for man, which means, men, you need help, okay? And, and all the ladies in the room said amen, right? You know? <laughs> Brittany's saying amen over here, you know? <laughs> but God says there's something necessary that woman can contribute in a committed covenant relationship of marriage with man that is beautiful, that is necessary, that is good. And so, men, we are lacking something when we try to do life alone. And so I, I think back to my first counseling class in seminary. I had a professor named Heath Lambert who I, I, I loved his class, and, and he gave us this assignment at the beginning of the semester, and he, it was called a sanctification project. And so if you're familiar with the word sanctification, you know that sanctification is good for you, but it's often painful um, because God is chiseling away some rough edges and smoothing you out and making you more like his son. And so when I heard sanctification project, I was excited about it and also a little, you know, anticipating what was coming, you know. And, and he said to all the married men and women in the room, you don't get to choose what your sanctification project's on. You have to go home and ask your spouse. And so I went home and asked Brittany, <laughs> and Brittany's like, oh, I know what you should do, Don. Anger. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm not an angry person, you know? And she's like, babe, listen, you've been stressed, and you've been taking way too many classes, and like, you know, it's, it's really getting to you, you know? And, and in that moment, I wasn't aware of something in me that needed the change, I wasn't aware of the kind of help that I needed from my spouse, but she was. And so men, whenever we read that God makes a helper suitable for man or that fits him, we ought to read that you and I need God's help from our wives. That this is a good gift from God in our lives. That this is his blessing and grace towards us. That her words matter. That what she has to say about you matters more than what anyone else has to say about you. 
And so, you know, one of you could come up to me and, and, and tell me, like, man, that sermon was horrible and awful, you know, and, like, you know, that might hurt my feelings a little bit. But if Brittany comes up and tells me, like, hey, you were really off here, I'm going to be thinking about that for weeks. Because her words matter. She knows me best. She sees things that I can't see. And God has given me her as a grace in my life for my sanctification and good and growth. And so we read in Proverbs this idea that death and life are in the power of the tongue, that those who love it will eat its fruits. And then right after that verse where it talks about the power of words, it says this, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Your wife's words of wisdom are God's gracious gift to you men. And to not listen to her wisdom in your life is to be a fool is to not listen to what the person that God has given you that knows you better than anyone else for your good. We read this in Proverbs 2, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And men, your wife ought to be your closest friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. This means that whenever she brings things to you, you ought to listen. You ought to hear her out. And you ought to take what she has to say very seriously. Men, her praise matters more than the praise of anyone else. And you ought to fight and actively seek out her praise by growing in Christ and seeking after him and asking her where you're falling short. She's a helper suitable for you, that fits you, that can complement you in ways that you need. She's a good, gracious gift of God in your life. And then we see this idea of derivative or derived authority in verses 19 through 23. So Adam begins to, to name all the living creatures, right? And, and as he's naming them, he's exercising this kind of authority that is derivative of God's authority, that's given to him by God. It's entrusted to Adam by God. So look at what it says here. In Genesis 2, verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And so we see here that the Lord God is the one who made every living creature. He's the one who holds ultimate authority over all of creation so that, whenever, so that he brings them to Adam to be named. So God is the one who has ultimate authority here. It's not Adam. Adam doesn't have ultimate authority over anything in creation. The kind of authority that God gives to his people is derived from God's own authority. This is throughout Scripture, and it starts at the beginning of Scripture, where God is the one who is their maker with ultimate responsibility and authority, and he entrusts authority to Adam as his image bearer to exercise on his behalf. And so Adam begins to name the living creatures, and, and, and he finds that there's not a helper suitable for him. And then when God makes the woman, he says, that's flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, and, and he calls her woman, Right? So we, we see in Genesis 1 that, that God was the one who was naming things, right? So in Genesis 1, we see in the first three days of creation, God calls things by their name. On the first day, he called light day and darkness night. And then on the second day, he called the expanse heaven. And then on the third day, he called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. 
And then God has Adam name the living creatures and the woman. And so the idea here is that God has entrusted a, an authority that is derived from his authority. It doesn't fully belong to Adam. It's something that's given to him as a stewardship. God is the one who has created the heavens and the earth and everything that fills them, and he holds ultimate authority, and any authority that God gives to men, whether it be in the home or the church, is derived from God's authority, and it's this idea of power under, not power over. So if you remember, we talked about this idea that the kind of leadership that the Bible talks about for men is a stewardship. It's where we exercise whatever kind of authority God has given us in whatever realm it might be in life, whether it's in the workplace or at home or in the church. We exercise it as those who are serving underneath God's rule and authority. That any authority given to you, man, is given to you by God as a stewardship and it belongs to him. He's entrusted it to you. It's It's not yours to do with what you will. This is why there's, there's so many misunderstandings about what headship and submission mean in the New Testament. The idea is not that, guys, you hold ultimate authority in your home and you can just tell your wife and kids to do whatever you want them to do. You need to stop reading her mail when it says, submit to your husbands and everything as to the Lord. And you need to start reading yours when it says that you ought to lay your life down for her. Because the kind of authority that God has given us men is not the kind of authority that lords it over. Jesus talks about leadership this way in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28 with his disciples. So, so mama has just come and asked for the right and left hands for her sons at Jesus' side and, and was just rebuked for that. And, and Jesus is talking to his disciples and it says, but he called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So he's talking about worldly leadership and a view of leadership that is worldly. They lord it over them, those who are entrusted to them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Men, any kind of authority that God gives you in life, whether it's in marriage or in the church or in the workplace, whatever it might be, is given to you as a stewardship where you ought to model what Jesus has done and how Jesus leads by serving and giving his life as a ransom. Where we ought to be obeying Paul's words and laying our lives down for the good of our spouses. The kind of authority God gives to the man in Genesis Two is a derived authority that comes from him as a stewardship. And we see this idea of priority and oneness in verse 24. So verse 24 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so... There's these, there's these three ideas here that I think can be summarized with the words leaving, cleaving, and weaving. Okay, So they, they rhyme, you know. Yeah. So if you don't want to use those words, that's fine. But leaving, cleaving, and weaving, it has a certain ring to it. And what it involves here is, is prioritizing your spouse so that you grow in physical, spiritual, and emotional unity. 
That's the idea that we see in verse 24 here. So that when, whenever it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, this is a, this is a controversial idea because in, in the Old Testament times, um, a man and his wife lived in the same compound as his parents, okay? And so the idea was that, you know, a woman would, would leave her family and, and head towards his, right? They would live in the same compound. But Moses is saying, is addressing men here. God's addressing men through Moses' words. He's saying, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And so men, you have a responsibility to prioritize your spouse, so that she becomes the most important person in your life next to Jesus. Jesus and then your spouse. That's the priority. That's the structure. That's how we ought to view this. The idea here is that all of a sudden, family relationships aren't as important as this relationship. All of a sudden, friendships and and relationships at work are not as important as this relationship. So the idea of leaving here is, is not this idea of total abandonment as though family and coworkers and friends don't matter anymore. The idea here is that when you enter into marriage, you are saying, this is the most important person in my life, and I'm going to live my life like that, according to that priority. She is your highest priority, men. Not your relationships at work, not your friendships, whether you've been friends with somebody for 25 years. If you get married, your wife is your best friend, and she is your priority. Not your mom. And ladies, don't help me here. Don't, Don't help me. Don't be the Holy Spirit. Men, when, when we get married, your wife is the most important woman in your life for the rest of your life. And if mama's not okay with that, then tough luck. Because this is obedience to God. We leave family in such a way as to, it's not that we don't care about them anymore. It's that we're placing a different priority on this person the one whom we're entering into a covenant that's meant to never end, that this person matters most. And then, and then the idea of cleaving or holding fast, this conveys the idea of an active and relentless pursuit of closeness. So this means, guys, we ought to take Peter very seriously when he says, live with your wives in an understanding and gentle way. This means that it matters, the things that she has to say, It matters the things that she feels. It matters that you listen to what she has to say, that you listen to how she feels, and that you try to understand it. So that whenever we don't understand about something about our wives or how they're feeling, that that's the place where we're meant to enter in and hold fast. That we're meant to actively and relentlessly pursue them in love. We're meant to grow in our relationship with them as, as, as we obey God's word, leaving the other priorities in our life and cleaving or holding fast to this relationship and growing in an active and relentless pursuit. Then there's this idea of weaving or, or becoming one flesh. So it, it refers to this union that not only involves a physical intimacy, though that's definitely here, 
So their task was to be fruitful and fill the earth, right? And so that involves a physical union that results in that. And, but it's more than that. It's not just a physical union. It's a spiritual and emotional one as well. The kind of oneness that we're seeing here is much deeper than just the physical. There's a, there's a unity involved here. And so if you think about you know, this idea of, of weaving, so you've got two different fabrics maybe or two different materials, and when you weave them together, all of a sudden they're no longer two separate things, but they're one. And so the idea in marriage and the relationship there is that you're no longer just two separate people. You've been woven together as one, and that oneness should be a priority. Whether it be physical intimacy, spiritual, or emotional, they should all go hand in hand and be part of growing in that relationship. That men and women, we ought to be seeking this oneness in relationship with one another. We ought to be seeking this out, actively pursuing it, and growing in it. The, the idea of oneness is, is so powerful that the physical intimacy expressed outside of the marriage covenant is so devastating and destructive because, because of the idea that we see uh, in 1 Corinthians 6. Here's what Paul says. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So Paul qu quotes Genesis 2 here, right? He quotes Genesis 2 talking about sexual immorality and says that whenever we express intimacy outside of the marriage covenant, it's, it's, we're uniting ourselves to someone that's not our spouse. And it's more than just a physical act. There's a spiritual reality happening here. There's a oneness that is automatically involved in that act. That there's a unity that comes about, a union. And, and Paul says in that same chapter that we ought to be united with Christ and that to unite ourselves to, to a prostitute is to sin against God. And so there's this idea that oneness conveys this deep, intimate unity that's physical, spiritual, emotional, and that we ought to protect it. We ought to seek it out. We ought to grow in it. We ought to leave our other priorities and cleave to this one and, and seek out this deep union with our spouse. And then we see, lastly, in verse 25, this idea of vulnerability and being unashamed. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so we have to talk about what, what does that mean to be naked and unashamed? The idea here is that there's this gladness about vulnerability. There's this gladness about being known. There's this openness to being known completely by another person. The idea, that's what the idea of nakedness conveys, is that there's nothing that I'm hiding. There's, you, you see all of me. You see everything that there is to know about me, and you know me completely. And then being unashamed conveys this idea that we're glad to be known in that way, that we want to be known in that way, that we enter into relationships to be known completely and fully, so that we're not hiding things back. And in a Genesis 3 world, we're not living in the Genesis 2 world, right? And, and so just an important aside, what, what Moses is, is saying is, is not that you should stop wearing clothing, okay, so... You know, I just want to keep that aside in there. 
because that's important. And you live in a Genesis 3 world, which is very different than Genesis 2 world, and so you need to wear clothes, okay? So just, just have that aside in there. Don't want anyone to misinterpret what I'm saying. But, <laughs> but in a Genesis 1 and 2 world, there was this kind of intimate closeness where there was nothing hidden from your spouse. There was nothing hidden away from another person. You had this deep, committed, intimate relationship where you were one, and you knew one another. So the reason some people have these, these weird dreams where they're, uh, you know, they wake up with no clothes on, they're in a public place, you know, in, the, in these dreams, you know, and, and they start freaking out is that we're, we're afraid of people knowing the parts of us that we want to hide from them, right? And this is not just true physically, it's true emotionally and spiritually as well. There's certain things that you and I, we, want, we don't want people to see it, right? You know, and so what part of you are you afraid for other people to see? Maybe it's your struggles with lust or anxiety or, or even depression. Maybe you're afraid that they might think about you differently if they knew what you struggled with. Maybe it's your broken past that's, that's filled with abuse and broken relationships. And, and you're afraid that people might look at you differently if they knew what had happened. Or maybe it's your problem with anger or pornography or, or, or maybe you're self-conscious about your weight and your physical appearance and, and you don't really want people to notice that and so you dress in such a way as to, as to make sure that they don't. Or maybe, maybe you're insecure about you know, your level of, of intellect and you, know, you hear other Christians talking about these deep theological things and, and how to interpret this passage in the Bible and you start to, to feel weird about that because you're not sure what you think about those things and, and you're afraid that if they know that you don't know what you think, then, then they might see you differently. See, we have a, a lot of things in life that we're afraid for other people to see. We're afraid to be completely and fully known. We're, we're, we're ashamed of some of the things about us, and we try to hide those things from other people because we're afraid that if they saw them, they wouldn't still love us anyway. And in a Genesis 3 world, that's part of our reality. In Genesis 2, it wasn't. Before the fall, before man and woman sinned against God, there was this complete and perfect knowledge of one another. They, they saw one another as they were, and then after sin, they began to hide things from God and each other. And we do the same thing in our relationships in this Genesis 3 fallen world. We hide things from others because we're ashamed of it, and we wonder what they might think of us. But here's the good news, friends. We serve a God who didn't just look on our shame and our fear and say, well, you brought this on yourself. We serve a God who entered into the brokenness. And as we look at the cross, we see a God who is willing to take our shame upon himself so that you and I might have hope that we might have forgiveness and that we might be cleansed from everything that we think dirties us or makes us less worthy. That, that when we look at the cross, we see a God who is willing to enter in and take our shame for us. He was naked, shamed, beaten, and died to identify, us with, identify with us in our pain and to redeem us from our sins. 
Jesus bore your shame on the cross so that you might be known completely and fully by God. So that you might have this kind of intimate closeness with God that transforms your horizontal relationships as well. That this vertical relationship that we can have with God when we look to the cross and we trust in what Jesus has done for us transforms us so that we're able to enter into relationships where we know there's brokenness and pain because we know the Redeemer. We know the one who brings forgiveness and cleansing and hope and redemption. Jesus makes it possible for us to be fully known by God and for us to enter into relationships where there is brokenness and to be known there as well and to seek to know one another and to point each other towards this hope that we have in him. And so I hope that's where you find your hope today. I hope that you trust in the Savior on the cross who is willing to take shame upon himself so that you might live in freedom and walk in his grace. Would you pray with me? God, we are in desperate need of you. God, we live in a world where there is brokenness and relationships that are filled with strife and pain. God, even the most close relationships we have, even in marriage and in parenting and with our best friends and our coworkers, God, we need your grace. We need your help. We need the hope of the Redeemer on the cross. And so, God, we look to you today and we trust in you and we ask that you might help us to be known, both by you and by one another, that we might live in relationships as we seek to reflect who you are to a broken and fallen world that needs you. In Jesus' name, amen.